And those of you that have your notebooks will be looking at page 10. If you do not have a notebook, we have some more that are being, we have a handful here that Len is passing out, and then we have some more that are being copied. So those will arrive shortly, and we'll get them to you. But it's page 10 for those of you that have them. And just before we look at the notes and continue where we left off, let me remind you of some stuff that's coming up. This evening, we continue our Sunday evening home groups. We call them uh, community groups. And if you're not uh, familiar with what those are, if you're not assigned to one, then check with the information center. Uh, that's the big table, the big desk out in the front, and they can uh, point in the right direction on that. We do those in six-week blocks. I think this is the fourth of, of the current six-week block, and then we have some time off, and then we start a new one. So you can jump in now, or you can jump in when we start a, a new one in, in a few weeks. But either way, you'll want to get the information at the uh, information center. So we've got uh, that coming up. And then uh, we also have, uh, in March, some, some fellowships coming up. March the 16th, we have a family bowling event. And it's at uh, Woodhaven Lane, 650, two games, and, sh and shoe rental uh, per person. You can get uh, tickets for that in the resource center. So uh, at our new facility here, everything that requires the exchange of money is done in that room, in the resource center, which looks like a, a bookstore. It's right out those doors and, a, and across the hall. So you can get your tickets for the bowling event Saturday, March the 16th, and that will be from 12.30 to 2.30 at Woodhaven Lanes. And then uh, that, following, that following day, uh, that Sunday, March 17th, we have our first of two servants seminars. We do these every year and around the uh, springtime in order to go over where we are in our 15-year plan and determine the two or three or five things that we want to try to accomplish in the, in the coming year. And so it's something that we encourage all of our church family to attend, and we offer it twice so that we increase the possibility that you can attend. If you can't make it to the one, hopefully you can make it to the other. It's the same seminar offered twice, Sunday the 17th and the following Sunday the 24th. It's from 4.30 to 8 o'clock, 4.30 to 8 o'clock. And it'll probably be here. I'm not used to saying that. You know, when we were, when I was putting that, composing the bulletin, I'm thinking, well, where's this thing going to be? Where we, what are we going to rent? Where are we going to rent to have this seminar? And then I realized, oh, that's right, we got a building. We can, we can have, we can, really. So I suppose it'll be here on the 17th or the 24th from 4.30 to 8 o'clock on those Sunday evenings. And then in between that, uh, Saturday the 23rd is the next newcomer's brunch at our house. And those of you that are uh, new to our church, what do, what do I need to do with that microphone, do you think, Pete? I need to back up? Shut up? Is that what you said? Yeah. <laughs> Let's not take a vote on that. All right, so... Back, should I go outside? Is that what you're telling me to, on the backup? All right. So I have to stay put. I kind of have to, it's like a caged animal. You're just, you know, you have to stay within your space. All right. That's what I'll, I'll do. I, if I walk in front of that, that's when it causes a problem. Okay. All right. All right. So Saturday, March 23rd from 10 a.m. to around noon at our house is our next newcomer's orientation. And newcomers defined as you've never been to one of these. So some of you have been around a while, you've intended to come several times, and it just hasn't worked out on the particular date that we've had it. 
So don't let the fact uh, that you've been around for a while keep you from coming. We really would love to have you come over. And my wife makes a uh, brunch for that. And it's an informal time of us getting to know you better and just enjoying each other's company. If you have any questions about our church, then it's a good time for you to ask those. And I'll answer them to the best of my ability. But we would like to have you come. We'd we'd like to know who is coming or how many are coming uh, for food purposes. So let the information center know. They'll put your name down. And then uh, we'll look forward to having you. It's Saturday, the 23rd, 10 a.m. to to noon. And look in your program for the other stuff that's coming up. Do we have any more notebooks yet, Len? Do you know if we have any more yet? Not yet? Okay. When they come, give me a a sign, okay? Let me know that they're here because I'm sure we have some folks who need them. For those of you that don't have a notebook, I apologize, but those will be coming shortly. Take a look at page 10 in your notebooks, Biblical Worldview 101. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in this. Last week we did not have this class because it was our first service and the schedule was a little bit different. So I'll quickly remind you of what the first nine pages are about. As we look at uh, biblical worldview, what we're, what we're talking about is looking at the world, viewing the world through the lens of what Scripture teaches. So seeing ourselves, seeing others, seeing God, and seeing His world from His perspective from a biblical perspective, thus the title Biblical Worldview. But looking at everything uh, is obviously a big subject. And so we've tried to categorize the subject matter that comprises a biblical worldview so that we can get our arms around it. And the way we've categorized it is in three major categories, orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Orientation is the first section of of these notes. And orientation involves primarily God's having created the world and then giving instruction to the creature on his purpose, his relationship to God, why God has him here, what it is he's to, to do. And so orientation, you could, if you were writing next to that, you could put creation, and it's really about who God is and what he expects from us. God is the creator, he made us, and he gives us an orientation to his world, instructions about who he is, who we are, why we're here, what he wants us to do. But then the second major category of a biblical worldview involves the entrance of sin into God's otherwise good world. And everything goes south with the entrance of sin. Uh, And that is, we refer to that as the fall. Not because it's an accident, but because now man fell from the position of fellowship with God that he enjoyed originally. And so the second major category in a biblical worldview is the fall, sin, or instead of orientation, it's disorientation. So the first category is orientation, creation, who God is and what he expects from us. Then disorientation, the fall, who we are and what our problem is. And so the Bible teaches that as a result of the entrance of sin, now all of these things that God had said and were clear to the man and the woman are now distorted. And all of the good gifts that in creation God had supplied for the man and the woman are now misappropriated, not for God's purposes and God's ends, but for our own ends. So a biblical worldview involves an orientation, creation, disorientation, the fall, Thankfully, it's not left there because God is still at work in his world. He has not abandoned his, though fallen world, he is still at work in it. And God is at work redeeming what has gone wrong 
because of the entrance of sin. And that is the third major category of a biblical worldview. Orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. God is reorienting his world to what it was originally designed to be. And he is doing that reorienting through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are in the midst of the second of those three, disorientation and the effects of sin upon us, upon our relationship with God, and upon his, his world. And on, that's why on page 10, if you look at the top, it says section 2. Section 1 was orientation. Section 2 is disorientation. And as part of the disorientation that results from sin, the world in which we now live and the people that comprise it have adopted a value system that is contrary to that which God provided in creation, in orientation. And so as a result of that, the Bible speaks of the world in negative terms. It's not that the physical place, as we're going to see, is the problem. It's not that, it's not that matter, material, physical substance is the problem. It's not that the earth itself is the problem. But rather, it's the people who comprise the world and the false value system, anti-God, contrary to God's purpose and design value system that we adopt and pursue and purvey. And so that's why this lesson is about the world, being in the world, you see at the top there, but as the Bible teaches, not of the world. And I say at the top of page 10, we've seen that contrary to God's original design in his orientation, man sinned and thereby became disoriented to God and his world. This has had numerous negative effects, including man's relationship to humanity and to his environment. But most of all, sin has adversely affected our relationship to God. As a result of the fall, the good world of the Creator has become corrupted by the creature. Now, that which is good in and of itself is often perverted to uses other than those intended by God. Now, let me just stop there. Notice that. Things that are good in and of themselves are now perverted to uses other than those intended by God. So what that means is that there is, in fact, I can't think of anything. And if you can, let me know. But I can't think of anything in God's world that is evil in itself. You think about, the Bible has a lot to say about the evil effects of money, for instance. But it doesn't say money is evil, does it? It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But notice, that's placing a value on money that is distorted. So money or physical things are not evil in themselves, but rather it's what we do with those things, and what we do with those things because of sin now is to often misappropriate those, reorient those to our own ends rather than God's, and those ends are often sinful ends. Now, Len, you have some notes. All right, you got anybody that will pass them out with you? You have more there? All right, you got a uh, good deal. Thank you. Anybody that needs some notes, Len, and uh, you got some here, Len? Why don't you guys come to the front and make your way to the back? Yeah, come all, come all the way to the front, and then you can walk to the back as people put their hands up, okay? And I just did that because I wanted everybody to see Len. This is Len, and... This is Vince. Yeah, you got one over here. 
hey, you, is that all you have? You only have that many? Is that, is that the reprint? Is that, is that more having... Really? He's a cheapskate. I'm going <laughs> to... Okay. Hey, you're just the messenger, right? Okay. All right. Well, I'm guessing that there are other people who need notes. I thought we would make a whole bunch of notes. But, uh, the, but our copyist uh, is an Al Gore fan, and he does not want to unnecessarily kill any trees. So I hope everybody who wants one has one or look on with somebody. Page 10 again. So there's nothing in God's world that I know of, physical matter that is evil in itself. It's what we do with that. And that's different than a, a whole philosophical system going back to the time of, of your New Testament. It was, and it was in force and in vogue at the time of the New Testament. There are places in which it is actually addressed, and it's a fancy term called Gnosticism. And, and uh, Gnosticism had within it this, and just stay with me for a second, this Platonic, that's Plato, the philosopher, idea of a dual world, the spirit world and the natural material world. And the spirit world was good, and the material, natural, physical world was bad. And so Plato would call the body, the physical body, he, he referred to it as the prison house of the soul. But notice it's the prison house. You're stuck with the body. And when we looked at orientation and creation, it was decidedly non-Gnostic, non-Platonic dualism. We did talk about there being a natural, physical, material body and an immaterial spirit, but not that one is good and the other is bad. God made both. And God made both to interact with each other. So if you were here as we went over that, that's what you heard. But there are many people who have adopted this platonic idea uh, of, of a dualism between what is, what is matter, what is, what, is, uh, what is physical, versus what is spiritual. And you hear it in church sometimes. So sometimes people will refer to the flesh. And the problem with sin is the flesh. And sometimes they think they mean the body. But see, the, the Bible uses the Greek word sarx, which is translated flesh. But, in fact, the NIV translates that sin nature in order to make it clear. It's not talking about the physical body. So there is nothing wrong with the flesh. There's nothing wrong with the, the body inherently. God made it good, but we use it toward sinful ends, as we do everything else that God has, has made. And so that's what we mean in that second paragraph. As a result of the fall, the good world of the Creator has been corrupted by the creature. And now that which is good in and of itself is perverted often to uses other than those intended by God. The Bible calls this fallen value system that causes us to reorient the use of what God has given us toward ends other than His. The Bible calls that value system worldliness. Therefore, for the believer, the world is fraught with dangers and requires much discernment to navigate its terrain. This lesson will look at what the Bible says regarding the world and worldliness. So the world is fraught with, with dangers. 
But again, notice the world in quotation marks, not understanding the world as the physical world in which we reside, but rather the value system that is followed by the people who comprise God's good world. That's what the Bible means when it talks about the world and worldliness. So let's get at that by looking at Roman numeral one, the power of an ism. And the idea in these next few lines is you can take a perfectly good word, but that word becomes something quite different when ism is suffixed to it, attached to it. And so you take a word like feminine, which is a perfectly good word, but feminism is quite a different thing. That's a whole ideology. Or you take a word like natural. It's a perfectly good word, just referring to the natural world. But naturalism is a whole philosophy. That all that is, is what we find in, in nature or behavior. Again, a perfectly good word that all of us would use. But behaviorism is a philosophy. It's a way of explaining why people do what they do. And then liberal. Believe it or not, liberal is a perfectly good word. You know, when, when I am at dinner and my wife is giving helpings, if she's giving a liberal helping of stuff I like, liberal is a perfectly good word, okay? So liberal, but, but liberalism becomes something, becomes something else. And so, and so too now with this word secularism. We've singled it out in the middle of the, the page. And R.C. Sproul says from his book Life Views, the dominant ism of American culture, the ism reflected in the news media, the film industry, the novel, and the art world is secularism. Secularism is the umbrella that shields the various competing philosophies beneath it. The word secular has its origin and roots in the Latin language, comes from the word seculum, which means world. There's another Latin word for world, mundus, and so what's the difference? In Latin, the word for this world in terms of time is seculum. The word for this world in terms of space is mundus. The secular refers then to this world in this time. Its point of focus is here and now. The accent of the secular is on the present time rather than eternity. So... You hear secularism in. You only go around once, right? So go for the gusto. And if you're somebody then who lives with that, with that notion, if you've never heard you know, the Latin terms mundus or seculum or secularism, but you live with that as your pra practical philosophy of life, then that's what's going to guide you. All that matters is what's going on here and now. And you can see how that indeed dominates the thinking of our culture. Now, I would just say that it can dominate or at least infiltrate the thinking of professing Christians as well. I've often said that, of course, there are no atheists in this room, and the Bible teaches there aren't any real atheists anyway. But you can live as a practical atheist. That is, you believe in God, but he doesn't make any real difference. And, and likewise, we can live as secularists, as if this world is what matters most. As if my possessions, my money, my retirement, all the stuff that I'm working for is what matters most. And we can get sucked into the American dream, 
and chasing the almighty dollar. And when we do that, we, even as professing Christians, are living as secularists, as if this time and this place is all that matters. If you look at the way the Bible portrays those who are faithful to the Lord, these are people who are willing to leave it all on the turf for Jesus. They're willing to leave it all on the court. They're willing to to risk it and to give it up. Why are they willing to do that? Because they have a a decidedly non-secularist view. They believe with all their hearts that there is something, not only something more, something more important and better. And the writer of Hebrews extols these people of faith. We're not going to turn there now, but if you were to look at the end of Hebrews chapter 10, the end of Hebrews chapter 10, it speaks of those who, and I'm quoting now, joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. Can't be Americans. I mean, there's my stuff, and if you come to get it, I will shoot you. Multiple times, with multiple magazines, with multiple, just all right, but anyways. Now, I'm not in favor of people taking your stuff, okay? But we are so focused on our stuff and the here and now that we read something like joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property and we go, what is that? What worldview is that? And then that leads into chapter 11 of Hebrews by faith. And over and over again, they were pursuing, the writer of Hebrews says, better and lasting possessions. Decidedly non-secularist view. And so you and I need to ask ourselves, to what degree am I a secularist? Do I look at life through the prism, through the lenses of just here and now and what's going on here and now rather than taking the long view of eternity? Bottom of page 10, secularism then is looking at the world from a time-bound earthly perspective. It's what the Bible refers to as worldliness. The world system or one of the, you know, those are Latin words, saculum and mundus, but the Greek word translated world is cosmos. It's the value system of this world. And as such, it's nothing, nothing new about it. <laughs> it's been around since the fall. And centuries ago, the Greek philosopher Protagoras issued the maxim of the secular humanistic outlook. And it's this, man is the measure of all things. And so you, you see that and you experience that. And you may even, to some extent, adopt that. It needs, it must be resisted. And that is why the Bible warns over and over again about the world. And if you look at page 11, you see those warnings. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. James chapter 1 Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this. Look after orphans and widows in their distress. Keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Famously in 1 John 2, do not love the world. Or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world. Now notice how it's defined. It's, it's cravings, desires, lust of the eyes, boasting of what he has and does. 
These come not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. And then Jesus prays in John 17. The night before he dies, he prays this majestic prayer for himself, for his first followers who are there with him as he prays, and then for those who would come after them and believe because of their message. He prays for you and me the night before he dies. And as part of that prayer, this is what Jesus says to the Father, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And it is from that marvelous prayer of God the Son for us that we get this idea that we are to be in the world. I have sent them into the world, but we are not of the world. In it, not of it. Now, what does that mean? That's one of those, you know, bump Christianity bumper sticker things um, that we can say and... Not, uh, not think about what it means. In the world, not of the world. Those two prepositions matter. In is where you are. You're in it. This is the place where our ministry occurs. We are in the world. And God is not, God is not taking us out of the world until one of two things happen. We die or he returns. Meanwhile, we're in. And God, and God has us in on purpose. So whatever approach you, you come up with toward the world, if it's an approach that says get out, you got the wrong approach. Am I right? I mean, doesn't Jesus say, I'm the one who, who's sent you into? I was sent into, I'm sending you into. So if your approach toward the world says, we got to get out of here, then you're taking a decidedly non-biblical approach to the world. So that preposition, you're in, it's where you are, but then there is of, not of the world. And of has to do with source. It has to do with where you're coming from, where you derive your values. And those values are not of, sourced in. They don't come from the world. So you're in the world, but not of the world. Now, I've got four possible ways for you to put that together as a Christian. In, not of. You can be, you see in the bullet points there, someone can be in and of. Now, I say this is a Christian's relationship to the world, but actually that first one is a pagan. You're somebody who is not a Christian if you are both in and of. If you're in the world and the source of your values is from the world, then you're not saved. You're not a Christian. So you can be in it. That one approach to the world is to be in it and of it. That's somebody who doesn't know Jesus, somebody who has not been transformed. But then you can be 
not in and not of. So remember, of means source, where you derive your values from. So not of means I'm deriving my values from a source other than the world, not of. But then notice it's also not in. And that violates what Jesus prayed. I'm sending them into the world. But you can take an approach if you're not careful that, yes, I march to the beat of a different drummer. Yes, my, the source of my values is not the world. It is, it is God. It is his, his world. It is his, his word. But I can also withdraw myself from the, the world so that I'm not in and not of. So the first one is a pagan. Who's the second one? Well, you know, um, Amish, Amish people, you know, are, are very religious. Mennonite is a form of, of Amish. Um, so, you know, not of the world, but also not in it, completely you know, isolated from it. A monastic approach to life. So I've got a different value system, so I'm going to hide out from the world in a monastery. That would be another way to do this. But, and this is where I make myself unpopular. Everybody loves me when I talk about Amish people and monastics because we're none of those. But in, in conservative evangelical circles, we can seek to stay away from the world, avoid the world, not be conformed to the world by isolating ourselves from it. And so this, this, this is often the conservative church world. Isolate yourself. Get away from those people. And get away from, and get away from that stuff. And it's, it's the approach that many not only take, but many demand. And so you try, to, you try to be involved in ministry, effective ministry to people who are products of the world. How do you do that if you have no earthly idea who these people are, what they're thinking, what their problems are, how the Bible applies to the problems that they face and the errors that they pursue. How do you do that if you know nothing about that because you only hang around with Christian people? And when non-Christian people come around, they mess stuff up. I mean, that's what we think. So we've got this good thing going on. We've got this safe thing going on. And then you people come along and you've got these habits and these words and this stuff you do and we basically communicate we don't want you around. So not in and not of, unfortunately, is the approach to the world that many of us have adopted. It's a safer and easier approach. But you remember at the beginning I said if you adopt an approach that says get out of, not in, you are violating what Jesus prayed. I have sent them in, just as I have been sent in. And what were the results of Jesus being sent in? How did it go for Jesus? Well, you know, persecuted, ultimately crucified. Also, accusations leveled at Jesus. 
Do you all remember that? He's a friend of who? He's a friend of sinners. He hangs, he hangs around with drunkards. That's what they said about Jesus. See, the good news for us is nobody could ever say that about us, what they say about Jesus. And I'm being sarcastic. If, if people could not say about us what they said about the Lord, we need to rethink what we're doing. So in our relationship with the world, the not in and not of approach is not what Jesus prayed in John 17. But you can be not in and still be of. What is that? Well, you've got your own, you've got your own stuff that you do because worldly people are icky. And you don't want to be around icky worldly people. So you create your own versions of their stuff. The source of the values is still of the world. But it's a more refined approach to the same stuff. What is that? This is Christian TV. Now that that everybody's mad, I may as well just go for broke. You got TV shows, you got talk shows, we got talk shows. But they're not your talk shows. We got our own. They're based on exactly the same values that you got. But it's ours. We put the name Christian on it. But it's derived from precisely the same values. So we have, we in effect, create our own parallel world. So you got Christian everything. And it gets ridiculous sometimes. You know, we just, we're doing a renovation project. I'm very thankful for the brothers and sisters who volunteered time to help us with various aspects of this using their skills. And, and there were many, and I mentioned some of those last week. But the truth is, do you have to be a Christian to, like, lay asphalt? I mean, is there a difference between, like, Christian asphalt and regular asphalt? But we laugh But I actually saw a company, I haven't seen it for a while, so I'm guessing they're out of business, but I used to see this company advertising, and it was, I think it was Ron's Christian Asphalt Paving. Now this was, I looked carefully to see if Christian was the last name, Ron Christian's Asphalt. But no, it's Ron's Christian Asphalt. And I was thinking to myself, what does Christian Asphalt look like? And there, of course, the answer is, It's no different than regular asphalt, right? But we create our own parallel stuff. See, it's the same thing, but it's ours, and we got our name on it. So be extremely careful, dear friend, at the Christian marketing stuff. Because it markets, but it's Christian. But the fact that it's got a Christian name on it so that it's our stuff doesn't mean it's this necessarily different in its derivation, where its values come from. And so I am convinced that much of the evangelical world is in, not in the world. we got our own parallel universe, but much of what is in our parallel universe is derived from the world. So those are three wrong approaches. And the only right approach is what Jesus said, to be in and not of. To be able to be engaged with the world 
and yet separate from it in terms of where our values come from. What makes us tick? So here's my working definition of worldliness. It's nowhere in these notes. But worldliness is fallen values expressed in culture. Fallen values expressed in culture. And the world expresses its fallen values in 2013 American culture in particular ways. And if we are going to be careful to not be of the world, then we're going to have to analyze that culture and we're going to have to ask ourselves the forms that the culture presents to us are those expressing fallen values or common grace values. Now, go on for another five minutes. Are the forms that the culture is expressing fallen values or common grace values? What do we mean by that? Fallen values, I think you know what that is. Those are sinful values. Those are contrary to God. Those are things that, that value things that are distorted from God's original purposes. So, sensuality. Which that, that would be a fallen value. Just gratuitous sensuality. Do we live in a culture like that? So if you were to make a list of values, that would be a value of our culture. And then there are cultural forms that express that. There are TV shows that express that. There are, there are, there's music that expresses that. There's, there's dress that expresses that. So these are cultural forms, but they are expressing worldly va- something the world values. And we live in a world, a culture, that, that values that and expresses it. So that's fallen values. But what are common grace values? Common grace is just that. It's, it's grace that God gives commonly to Christian and non-Christian people alike. So this is why it gets difficult as you as a Christian try to decide what things should I adopt and emulate and imbibe and what things should I not. Because sometimes the world gets it right. And the reason the world gets it right sometimes is not because the world is right, but because God is gracious and His grace has a category called common grace. Let me give you an example. There are times when the world is living off of the borrowed capital of the biblical worldview. I call it the stolen capital of the biblical worldview, but... I mean, God made the world. The Bible tells you that. God's the creator tells you why God made it, who He is, who we are, gives us the orientation, and see everybody in the world, everybody who has rejected God, which includes everybody who comes into the world and is not converted, they are all part of that good world that God made. And even though it is now fallen, it still has the vestiges of that goodness. So as a for instance, God created marriage. Now, the world is trying everything that it can do in our day and age to pervert marriage, right? But for millennia, unsaved, unchristian people have participated in marriage. Well, why is that? 
because of God's common grace. And so marriage would be, and, and marriage in a church, and marriage before a minister, this would be a cultural form that the world is using, but it's expressing common grace values, not fallen values. And we should thank God for that. Or, if the Bible says, as it teaches as it does, God gave government, and he, and he did. And if the Bible teaches in Romans 13 to be subject to the powers that be because they are established by God and ministers of good for you, then when you see people who are unsaved being appropriately patriotic, that's a common grace value. The person doesn't have to be a Christian to do that. And we celebrate God's grace given commonly in the form of things like marriage or appropriate patriotism and so on. And you live at a place and at a time in a culture 2013 American culture, and you and I have to do this. We have to analyze the culture, and we have to say of the values that are expressed in the various ways they are expressed, are these common grace values or fallen values? Now, we've got to finish, but don't raise your hand, but how many of you have ever done anything close to what I just said? I know the answer to this. Many of us have grown up in church. And just by osmosis, we've just kind of gathered what we think is right. This is the stuff we do and our people do, and this is the stuff they do. We're us, they're them. And that's what we grew up with. But as a, as a result, we can, if we don't con- consciously think about this, then we can easily adopt values and sort of dress them up and Christianize them, and they're still worldly. I'm convinced that the church has done this with its view of material goods, material wealth. We've baptized American capitalism. Now, before I get shot, I'm a capitalist, I'll laugh. But we have, we have baptized this stuff. And we have not critically thought about the values that are expressed in the things that we just all do and we all accept. And so guys like David Platt have written some books to challenge that materialistic mindset that even pervades, pervades the church. So we'll continue thinking about that. In fact, we have a a lesson later in these notes where we do an exercise of going through and thinking about the values and whether they're common grace or whether or not they're fallen values. But most of us have never done that. We've just by osmosis adopted the way we do stuff because it's the way we do stuff. And I'll leave with this statement that you've heard me make a bunch of times. But if you do not consciously adopt your values from Scripture, then you will unconsciously absorb them from the culture. And so I'm asking for you and for me to think about consciously adopting our values and think about the stuff we engage in and what, does, what kinds of values does it express. Even engage in that this week, and we'll do it in a subsequent lesson. Let's pray and we'll be done.
Father, we thank you for the opportunity to consider these matters about how we relate to the world in which you have placed us, but then the world system, the cosmos, the values of the world, from which, out of which you have called us. So we are in it and not of it. And Lord, it is hard for us to navigate. It's hard for me. But you have called us to do it, and therefore it must be done, and it can be done. You've given us the guideline of your word to teach us what you value, what you have made, the purpose for which you have made it, so that we can identify the false uses of those same things, so that we can see that the good things that you have made are being distorted and perverted. But we have to have eyes to see and a desire to see them. I pray, Lord, that every brother and sister here would be desirous of your righteousness, that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness, and that that would motivate us then to have eyes to see and grant us hearts that are willing to repent and to change. Help us today and tomorrow this week to see in ways that we have not, that we'll begin adopting our values from your word rather than simply absorbing them from the world. Go with us, grant us safety, bring us back. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.